Father, thank you for your love for us. Father, thank you for your word that guides us, that protects us, that's designed to enable us to live a great life here and the most incredible life throughout all eternity. So, Father, as we look at words uh, in Scripture and as we deal with concepts, it sometimes runs completely contrary to maybe our cultural uh, existence and even sometimes our own kind of our character, God. Help us to trust you knowing that you give us your word for a reason, and it's because you love us and care for us. So, Father, as we look at what it means to turn the tide on tolerance, God, help us to understand why you want us to be intolerant of some things and tolerant of others. So move us, Father, to, to your wisdom and your word, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I don't think it, there's any question as we talk about, regardless of what generation or, or how you would describe yourself, that we have to acknowledge that there has been a change in the way that we view tolerance and what it means to be tolerant. Uh, I don't think we have to look any further, although as far as we need to make sure that we're looking further, but the, the issue that sort of pushes the envelope in the tolerance kind of thing that comes in, in your generation is the whole sexual identity kind of uh, uh, tolerance that's been, really that's come to the forefront in the last eight or ten years. Uh, years ago, I remember whenever, uh, and, and just speaking personally, I, I have a personal connection, I guess, with, with the view, with, with what happens whenever culture changes and we're called to embrace something culturally, but yet we may be called to reject something because of our biblical principles. Several years ago, you guys and, and those of you that are from the St. Louis area are familiar with the problems that our campus ministry underwent at Lindenwood University. And if you're not familiar with that, my son is Kerry Cox, and he's teaching somewhere in there or down there. I'm not sure where he is. But we, uh, we were removed as a student organization. If you get online, you can still find that if you type, type in Kerry Cox, across between uh, Lindenwood University Campus Ministry. There's a major story that was in the St. Louis Post, the major newspaper in our area. And the heading on the, the post was, Campus Ministry's Effectiveness May Be Its Undoing. And it talked about how the campus ministry began with three or four students there on Linden University. You know, at the time it was about six years earlier, seven years earlier. And how it rose to prominence during that time and was very successful in reaching people. Proselytizing is how they would describe it. But because of some of the stands that the, that the campus ministry took, that it was causing a lot of controversy. And I can't say a lot of things. I had some conversations with some people that were involved in, the, in that story and some things a little bit behind the scenes. But whenever I was talking with people who were, were, were to be objective, they weren't, to, they weren't trying to side with Lindenwood and, and what was going on there. They weren't trying to decide with, with, a, with a cross between and what we were doing in our ministry. He said there was a sort of a... a, a the perfect storm convergence that happened in the ministry. And this person said, number one, as I look and as I try to decipher what's going on, your highly successful campus ministry was a threat to the existing structures at, at this college, especially to the person who was the campus chaplain. And he had interviewed these people and he said, you know, you guys are having 75 people show up for events 15 miles off campus and they're having one show up at their planned campus event. So there's a jealousy issue. He said also another problem is, is that you guys teach things that, 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 that people in the academia don't accept. One of them he mentioned was that you have, you've had creationists, people who believe that God created the world come in and speak. And they had blocked people who had that opinion uh, from speaking. But because of our campus ministry and my son's position on staff there, they weren't able to block that. And for us, or we wouldn't have had, Carrie would have supported that in, in any way. But he said, so you have this, the, the science department who wants to see you guys eliminated. And he said, then you have the aggressive move as far as the homosexual community, the transgender community, who are now aligning against you. Uh, just a couple of years before that, Lindenwood board had made our, the, the, not the board, but the president and some of the people in the, uh, in the hierarchy there, had made a decision that they were not going to allow the Gay-Straight Alliance to have a club on campus. 
My son, Kerry, who was the director of student life and leadership at Lindenwood, was consulted. He had a voice, but he didn't have a vote in that decision. My son, Kerry, that you guys know, when they asked him, what do you think about having the, the, LB, uh, the, the uh, Gay-Straight Alliance uh, on campus, should they, we allow them to have a, a campus organization, my son's response was, you need to just let them do that. They're already here anyway, and all you're going to do is alienate anyway. Against that input, they voted not to allow that organization. But in the enforcement of their policy, guess who had to write the letter that said you can't have a club? It was Kerry. So across all the television stations, two of them I saw where they did stories on it, and they showed the picture of the letter, and guess whose signature was across the bottom of that letter? It was Kerry's. And so it led to that, that's three of the four factors that, that, that this guy was telling me that he thought was going on, off the record he was telling me this, was going on, and so that led to the expulsion of our group and my son losing his job. Now here's the thing, when Kerry talked with me, we have always been super loving. At that time we had more members of our student organization who identified the, their struggle as, as homosexuality or, or lesbianism than you did people that were in the organization, pseudo-organization at that time. And Kerry told me, he said, Dad, he goes, we always said at our fairs where we have our, our the, the fairs, you know, the, the job fairs or whatever, or the, the, the things that the school would put on, we always set up that when we were at SIU, we set up right next door to the Gay Straight Alliance. And we did that, and we were there to let them know that, we're, that we love you, that we care about you, that we're not going to treat you in a way that, that's unfair. Now, here's the thing. Whenever that was going on initially, whenever we would set up next door, uh, you know, our, our, our little tents next door to, to the, the Gay-Straight Alliance, 20 years ago, and that's about when that was now, they did not expect us to agree with them. And honestly, they were okay with that. What they expected from us was to be treated with kindness and civility, even through the acknowledgement that we believe that this is something that, that biblically is wrong, that God doesn't approve of. Fast forward 20 years, and what has happened is a complete flipping of that switch to where now it's not enough to be someone who says, I care for you, I'm going to treat you with dignity, I'm going to be kind to you, but I cannot agree with you. That last part of the description of how we are going to treat them has now not, has made all of the other statements useless because now not only do we have to be kind, caring, you have to say, I think this is okay. And now more than ever, if you don't do that, you are immediately classified as someone who is evil, someone who is uncaring, regardless of the actions that are going on. Now, this isn't the only issue that I want us, I don't want, to, I don't want us to, to, to so center on this that we ignore other areas of ministry to where there may be biblical edicts that completely conflict with cultural edicts or mores. But this is the one I think that all of you guys on campus, you know what this is. This is the one that stands out. This is the one that we're being forced to deal with. So the question is, how do we deal with the issue? How do we deal with tolerance? And so we're going to look at a first century example of a church that was tolerant and they are being condemned by the Holy Spirit for their tolerance. And one of the things, just as a way of introduction, I think it's important for us to realize, is if you'll sort of just do a search of, hey, what happened whenever a church was being more affected by their culture than by their Christ, when they were more tolerant of the cultural feelings and the cultural expectations than they were the expectations of Christ, you'll find some examples of that in Scripture. We're going to look at one in detail, and it's the church at Corinth, and it deals specifically with sexual immorality. But there's another sort of quick summary, Cliff Notes example, as you can get, if you go to the first three chapters of Revelation, specifically where John and the Holy Spirit are confronting the seven churches of Asia. If you read through those seven churches of Asia, this is something that I found out that, that, that's interesting because with three of them, nothing is mentioned about them tolerating or putting up with or compromising with the culture. With three of them, no mention at all of your tolerant or you're intolerant. But with four of them, we find this idea of tolerance, intolerance at the very forefront. One of the churches is Ephesus. 
And they are the intolerant church. But here's the thing, if you would read, and you can just, this is just to sort of, to set an understanding that this war that we're involved in is nothing new. That you guys are not involved in something that goes, oh, this has never happened before. It has happened again. And so Ephesus is the intolerant church, and yet they are praised for their intolerance. He says, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you've tested those who claim to be apostles and are not, but have found them false. He says, you don't put up with false teachings. You don't put up with anti-biblical concepts in your church. And he praises them for that. The next church where we see it come in is the church at Pergamon. And Pergamon is the tolerant church, and they are condemn for their tolerance again as we look at revelation 2 nevertheless he says some good things about him he says nevertheless i have a few things against you there are those among you who hold to the teachings of balaam who taught balak to entice the israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality likewise you also hold to the teachings of the nicolaitans Repent, therefore, otherwise I'll come to you and fight against you with the sword of my mouth. So he goes, you guys got some great things, but one of the problems is you have people that are in there that are teaching a doctrine that's un, that, that, that is unbiblical, and again, it's in reference, at least part of it, to sexual immorality. And he says, unless you repent, unless you repent, what of, of your tolerance, I'm going to come and I'm going to fight against you. And if you read the context, what he's saying is, he says, listen, you, if you don't repent of this, you guys can show up for church, but the Holy Spirit won't. And I think it's important to recognize that what these messages to the seven churches of Asia say is that whenever a church leaves, loses its biblical edict, it doesn't mean they stop getting together. They stop embracing scripture. It does mean that the Holy Spirit stops embracing them, but they still continue to assemble. There are churches all across this nation that have embraced sexual immorality on any num number of levels. It's not fair to, to just simply talk about the, the, the gay straight issue without the people who churches that have no problem with people living together when they're not married being sexual immoral. But here's the thing. Those churches, while they may not be condemning it in the pulpit, it's condemned from heaven. And if there's not repentance, they may still have their placard out there, but the Holy Spirit, Christ, isn't showing up. And you can read those, those, three, those seven churches. You'll find out it's the message. Either repent or Christ is going to pull the lampstand, his presence from them. So you have Ephesus that's praised for their, toler for their, their intolerance, Pergamum, which is, which is condemned for its, for its tolerance. Then you have Thyatira. It's another tolerant church, and they're condemned for their tolerance. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that, wick that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet, but by her teachings she, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of meat sacrificed to idols. I've given her time to repent of her immorality, but she's unwilling. So I'll cast her on a bed of suffering, and I'll make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. Apparently, you have a figurehead that he's comparing to Jezebel, who was a worshiper of a sexual god in the Old Testament. One of the, you know, guys, nobody here has, you know, has, has a relative that when they were you know, they did the gender reveal, you know, your party. And somebody said, do you know what you're going to name her? And they, no one said, Jezebel is the leading candidate to name her. Now, even you may, why not? Old names are in. Because an immediate look, just a cursory look at Jezebel knows this is a wicked woman. And she was a wicked woman who was involved in sexual immorality. And again, I don't think it's accidental. And again, these people, are, they're tolerating it. And the Holy Spirit says, you need to get, listen, if, you, if she doesn't repent, she's going to suffer, but not only are I going to cause others to suffer, then after that again, he gives the same thing. Listen, he who has ears to hear, hear what the Spirit says with the threat of the removal of God's presence in their life. Then the fourth church is a church at Philadelphia that refuses to compromise false teaching. And it's not as clear as the others, but again, and this is a church that says, will not compromise the word of God. God says, I know your deeds. See, I placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. You have not compromised 
And they are praised for it. Even though their strength is waning, he's going, listen, I'm going to open a door for you that no one can shut. So as we look at this thing, what you see in Revelation, when specifically the, the churches of Asia, two churches that are intolerant are praised by the Holy Spirit, two churches that are tolerant are condemned by the Holy Spirit, and that is exactly the opposite that you would get from the cultural expectation when a church is tolerant. They are praised by our culture. When they are intolerant, they are condemned. It just tells you that heaven and earth have a completely different perspective. Now with that in mind, let's jump into a more detailed, and what time am I supposed to finish, by the way? Can somebody wave your arms when I'm like five minutes or ten minutes out for me? You know, or walk out if it's bad, I'll get the message. And, and, we'll, and we'll cut this off, okay? But let's look at, at a, a text, and we're going to walk through it, and we're going to look at a church that has lost its bearing. Now, one of the things I think that you need to know, as, as, we, as we talk about the church, you need to remember that the church is made up of individuals. And in order for a church to be strong, individuals have to be strong. And so that's just a, a foundational principle at Corinth. This church that is struggling with tolerance in a way that's going to destroy, destroy them is overcome I'm, overcomes this problem because the majority decide to side with the spirit and not with the culture. Later on, Paul will say, the punishment inflicted by the majority. It means that some apparently resisted that change. They resisted the call to biblical commitment and to big biblical principles, but the majority. And the truth is probably we're never going to have churches where 100 people or 100% are sold out for Christ. But we need to know as individuals when we commit if the majority commit, that God can work incredible things. If not, if the majority doesn't do that, destruction is going to end in the ministry, whether it would be Corinth or whether it be one of those seven churches of Asia. So the church is made up of individuals, and as we talk about acting correctly, our acting is grounded in our thinking. And our thinking is always grounded in something, our reasoning. We perform out of our definitions and expectations, right? If we don't under... So if I'm thinking wrong, it's impossible for me to, to be what's right. To do what's right. It's why Paul talks about it in Romans 12. Remember, he talks about, listen, let God transform you. How does God transform us and make us into something? How does he metamorphosize us into something that's incredible? He does it by changing the way we think. We can't become something great for God unless we allow God to change our thinking. So here's the battle, though, whether you realize it or not. There has always been a battle in Scripture, and it's in Romans 12. It's all through the churches in Revelation, if you would study them in depth. There is a, what's going to form your thinking? Now, understand, your thinking is going to form your acting, your relating. So what's going to form my thinking? And there's a battle that goes, goes on. Either Christ will form my thinking, and that's what Paul's saying in Romans 12. Let God change you by adhering to the way that he wants you to think. Or culture will change. That's the beginning of Romans 12. Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. Don't let it form the way that you're thinking. So in Romans 12, 1 through 3, you have this battle of thought that's going to play out in a battle of transformation in how we live and how we behave. So the question is, how does a church, how do you and I get to the point to where we're allowing the world to form our thinking rather than Christ? And we're to use Corinth to look at that with just the acknowledgement of that. What is it that causes a church to put up with things that they shouldn't? So let's start in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. If you have your Bibles, you can turn over there. And we're, I'm going to try to walk through this sort of, to, to, to read the text and give you what I think is the problem and in, in, in how we rectify that in our day. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 1, the Bible said it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and that of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, whether it's his mother or his stepmother, there's a possibility that it could have been his mother. And that to save some embarrassment that goes on, a likelihood that it's a stepmom. But he says, listen, the pagans don't even tolerate that kind of thing. And then look at verse 2. And you are proud. Should you have rather... Should you, shouldn't you have rather gone into mourning and have put out of fellowship the man who's been doing this? Now, just to begin with, we need to recognize, here's the thing. Here's a problem that's, caught, that, that's threatening the church. 
And that is that they have allowed culture to define how they are going to relate to people rather than Christ. And in, if, you, if you look at the, the culture of Corinth, if you look at the culture of Rome, what you have is an incredibly permissive culture. In that day, people say, man, our day is the worst sexually and it's the worst as far as acceptance and tolerance of evil. No, it's not. Rome and, and, and Greek times were incredibly tolerant. There are estimates that during the Roman periods, up to 50% of the population was involved in bisexuality or homosexuality. One in two. Our culture doesn't, even in the most liberal uh, estimates by, by people that would look to include... Our culture doesn't come close to that. All of the Caesars, the presidents of their days, except one, was involved in bisexual behavior. Guys, how many of you watch the movie 300? Do you, remember, do you realize that many of the Spartans, most of the Spartans were bisexual, and it was not uncommon for them to have sex with their, with the, their fellow warriors before they would go to war? Now, that's not an image that's produced in the movie because you're going, it just, uh, yeah, I don't know how to deal with that, you know. So they put beautiful women, and understand they like beautiful women, but they like sexual pleasure. And so they're in a culture that's all to that, that is tolerated, and they're praised for that. To the point that the culture, that the church get a cue, uh, gets a cue from culture, that you ought to be accepting of everything. In Corinth, there is a temple to where the way you go worship is to have sex with the temple prostitutes. It's an act of worship to God. And so you have this whole thing in Corinth where it doesn't matter if you're Jew, you're Gentile, it doesn't matter what you do, God loves us all. And understand God does love us all, but that doesn't mean that God accepts us all or tolerates all that we do. So they get involved to where they move purely based upon culture, not at all based upon Scripture. Guys, that's the thing. It is absolutely clear from Scripture without any, without any debate as I study, I was looking for some, maybe some theologians who would go, no, nah, Paul's not saying they're wrong, the scriptures. No, it is absolutely universal that, that, that Paul is saying they're wrong. The weird thing is you can find some people who go, yeah, it was wrong for them, but it's not wrong for us. And then as the person begins to explain why it was wrong for them and it's not wrong for us, guess what the explanation, the justification why it's not wrong for us is in those cases? Times have changed, i.e. we live in a different culture. If you look at the people who are involved in saying that same-sex attraction is okay, what you find out is they say this is a different time. In that day, what Jesus and what they were, they were pointing to is selfish homosexual relationships. They had never known of a loving, kind, comparing, monogamous homosexual relationship, which is not true. Guys, if you wanted just a real good sort of a, 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 a summary, a, a, I don't know how to describe it, cliff notes of, of scholar, scholarly insight into this. Look up Timothy Keller and put in Timothy Keller's, uh, just put Timothy Keller and then put article on homosexuality. It'll take you five minutes to read it. He does a great job of debunking the cultural myth that somehow it wasn't right then because of the abusiveness of the nature of it and what he's really talking about is homosexual prostitution and slavery. It's just not true. And so here's the thing that we need to recognize is that even when the church, when we are clearly in error, Satan will somehow try to teach us that what we are doing, that what we are doing that is wrong is somehow noble. You notice that, that, that they're not sheepish about what they've done. Something that is inherently, clearly wrong and opposed to Christ, the people who have claimed to be followers of Christ are proud that they are doing the opposite of what their Savior and what the Holy Spirit has called them to. So one of the things that we need to recognize is that Satan has the ability to get us to fall prey to cultural mores rather than Christ commands in Christ's word. And it's a problem that we've got to be aware of or we can fall prey to it. So you see, as we go in, they, they, had, they had had a, a cultural, they had succumbed to the cultural pressure rather than the Christ-like calling. Now as you go on down and you say, what's happening here? Let's read on down. He said, and, and you're proud. Shouldn't you have rather gone into mourning and put this man out of your fellowship, the man who's been doing this? 
For my part, even though I'm not physically present, I'm with you in spirit. And, and as one who is present with you in this way, I've already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So they had succumbed to a cultural pressure rather than the Christ-like call. A second thing is that they had a misunderstanding of what it meant to be gracious. And in this, in this verses we just read, we're going to find two things. Why were they proud? Because they thought in saying, we're going to love and accept you, that they were embracing grace. And understand, God calls us to be gracious. But we need to make sure that we define graciousness. In our cultural context, even within churches, grace almost always involves the idea of tolerance and making something that is wrong in some way, all right, or if not all right, easily forgiven, even when there's not repentance. Now, when you, th when you think about someone saying, ah, oh, come on, we need to be gracious to someone, we need to be gracious to them, how many of you tend to think that you're saying, okay, we need to let this go, it's not big, that big a deal? How many, when, when you think of grace, think that kind, of, that kind of concept? Raise your hand if that's where you are. I think it, maybe it's too much to process right now. I think that's where most of us are. But here's the thing, what, what he, Paul says is, listen, you've been proud, but, but what grace really would have done is it would have made you mourn. Because you see, the grace of God in, in Titus 2, and if you've got a chance to flip over there in your Bibles, a really significant verse, turn over to Titus 2, chapter, uh, two, chapter 2, verse 11, where Titus uh, receives and he says, this message is, for the grace of God that has appeared that offers salvation to all people. So he says the grace of God and the reason that the grace of God appears is that it offers us, offers us salvation. Salvation eternally and salvation from who we are right now. Grace changes us. But do you notice it says the grace of God has appeared to all men and it offers salvation. The grace that's offered does not bring about its salvation because sometimes we can reject it. But notice what he says next as he describes that grace. It, what is that? It, the grace of God, teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Grace is, all, is not always something that permits. Grace, if properly understood, prohibits things. You see, my wife is incredibly gracious to me, and I'm incredibly gracious to her. I think she knows that if she were to have an affair, it would break my heart. But I think she knows that if she came back and said she was sorry, I think she knows I would accept her back. I didn't use her in that illustration because I'm not so sure about that with her with me, okay? Uh, you know, oh, grace, yeah, I'll give you grace, I forgive you, now get out of here. <laughs> but if I properly understand her love and her grace, is that going to encourage me to do more things that are wrong if I know that they hurt her? even if she'll forgive me. I would suggest to you that grace, when properly understood, does exactly what Titus says it will do. It will move us away from pleasing ourselves, but living in a way that pleases God. Grace is a visible manifestation of God's love, and when you are loved well, it makes you want to please the lover. Unless you're incredibly selfish and don't give a rip. All of us know some guy or some girl who is an incredible husband or or. or uh, wife or girlfriend or boyfriend, they're incredible loving and serving and they are dating or married to a selfish scumbag that uses them for whatever and does whatever they want, right? You all know that girl or that guy. If you don't know them, it may be you, okay? Because that person isn't aware, right? That person isn't aware. They're going, everybody else can see it. You're going, why does he stick with her? Well, and here's this guy. You're looking at this girl going, she loves him. She's forgiven him a hundred times. The person doesn't understand what grace is and how it's to affect us. Grace has become a mode, a, an enabler of selfishness rather than an enabler of surrender. So Corinth has succumbed to this cultural thing in part because they have a misunderstanding of grace. That grace is pro, always it allows us to be permissive rather than prohibitive. And that's not true biblically. So they, 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 if we're not careful like them, will succumb to this culture view because we misunderstand what's grace. Oh, we're being gracious. Can I let you know there's nothing gracious about allowing someone to be involved in a behavior that is going to cause them to be lost forever. That's not gracious. It's not a gracious thing 
when your friend is passed out. I have one of my best friends who died in his 40s that when he was a heroin addict was with his girlfriend and she goes to the bathroom and he's in the car and the guy at the gas station has to come and say, listen, you know, your, your boyfriend out there, he's foaming at the mouth. You need to get him to hospital. She gets in the car, looks at him, goes, ah, not a big deal and drives to the next party. Wasn't it kind for her just to overlook that? You're going, you've got to be kidding me. You know, she really cares about the guy. You, you look at her and go, how in the world could she just go to another party? You know the answer because she didn't give a rip about him. What she wanted was the next high. She was selfish. And what we need to recognize sometimes is it may seem like, okay, I'm being tolerant. You know, that's not a big deal. You're a heretic, you're whatever. But we can't be gracious and allow people to do things that can lead to their being lost. Titus says the grace of God that appeared to all men appeared for salvation purposes. Thirdly, as you look and see what's going on, they misunderstood what it meant and what the Bible says about judging. They misunderstood what the Bible says about judging. Because he says you're proud when you shouldn't be. Verse 3, for my part, even though I'm not... Physically present, I'm with you in spirit as one who is present with you in this way. I have already passed judgment. No, you, Paul, you evil, you twisted. Don't you know that you're not supposed to judge? I've been told, and I believe this is true, that 50 years ago, if you would ask people, name one verse of scripture, whether you can tell where it is or not, just, is there one verse of scripture that you're familiar with? And immediately, they say 50 years ago, the verse would have been, for God so loved the world that he gave his only one and only son. Now they say that that's not true, and I don't know if this has been verified with surveys or anything like this, but I think it's true. Now if you say, what's one thing that you know from the scripture, what's one passage of scripture, the answer is, judge not, lest you be judged. And it's went away from a focus on God's love for us to where now, and that is not a verse that is used in scriptural context. It's used like a cross to a vampire. To back people off. To move them away. And it does that, does it? Well, you know you're not supposed to judge. And I would encourage you guys to do, guys to do a very, very thorough investigation of scripture is what the Bible says about judgment. We're going to look at it just a, a little bit. Do you realize that as, as followers of Christ, we are commanded to make righteous judgments? And one of the things that Paul is going to tell the Corinthians later on is that when you make judgments, make sure that when you do them, that you're doing them with the mind of Christ. That you're not doing this with, with your own preferences. For some of us, we go, oh man, when, that, when we think about some of that sexual sin, you know, we go, oh man, to think about a, a, a kid, a son sleeping with her mom, that's just gross. I mean, doesn't that just, I mean, doesn't that just gross you out? I mean, you know, you, 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 may, you may make some joke about it. But there are some things that are just gross. I remember listening to the, to the to cable guy and he said, and he was asking us, he said, any of you guys ever see your mom and dad having sex? And there's this like, oh, and then he goes, yeah, me too. I'll never go to that website again. And everybody's laughing and going, oh, but they're going, oh, that's kind of gross, you know, that thought. The thought of a, of a, of a man having, a, a, a young man having sex with his mom or a girl having sex with their dad, you go, that's gross. For many of us, we have this, this repulsion. We go, I just don't understand at all how a guy could have sex with another guy or a girl could have sex with another girl. And understand all of that personal revulsion isn't what makes it wrong. I know people who are reviled by a husband having sex with his wife because of things that happened in their past. It doesn't make husband and wife sex wrong, even though it is absolutely repulsive to the person who has been there. Janice Wade, one of our leaders at the Crossing Church, had a struggle with having sex with men at all. When your dad starts having intercourse with you when you're about three years old to the time you're 12 or 13, sex with a man is repulsive. But what Janice had to come to grips with is that it, sex with a man with a husband and wife isn't wrong even though she struggled with that and you can understand why. You see, as we begin to decide what's right or wrong, it's not cultural, culture that determines and it can't be also our preferences. Because all through history we'll find the church and people in church going, I think this is okay, why? Maybe the culture was okaying it. 
Maybe their own character was okaying it, but it was wrong. Racism was wrong, even though it wasn't reviling to the people who held it. They just thought it's the way it is. Culture said it's okay, but they had brought them in a culture where it didn't, it didn't offend them. It should have, because it is wrong biblically. You see, they had a misunderstanding at Corinth about what it meant to judge. And let me give you some insight here. Their, their, mis, their cultural misunderstanding of judgment came up, first of all, with the question, should I judge? And the culture then and now says, you should never judge. Biblically, that is absolutely untrue. <clears throat> absolutely untrue. If you look in the context when Jesus said, don't judge, you will find out that he is confronting a hypocritical group of self-righteous religious leaders who are exalting themselves through their righteousness and finding reasons to debase others. Self-righteous, condemning judgment is always forbidden. But remember what he says, how can you look at your brother who has, uh, who has a speck in his eye when you have a beam in your own eye? Watch, don't look at your brother. You're not supposed to judge that he's got a speck. That's not what he says. Look at the context. Let's look in Scripture. What does he say? First remove the beam from your own eye, and then you'll be better able to help your... You, to, to what? Doesn't helping him involve judgment? What he's saying is if you've got a beam in your eye and you're going to the eye doctor, if the eye doctor has a beam in his eye and he goes, let me look at your eye and he, every time that you open your eye, you slap them up against the side of the head with a beam, you're not going to help them. They're not going to like you, much like people don't like us because of our self-righteous, condescending, as if we don't sin, judgments. But he doesn't say, just let the guy have the speck in his eye. I know people who've had things in their eye that they didn't remove that almost blinded them. He goes, get yourself together and then go with the view to help them, not simply to point out their flaw. Again, the command later on Jesus gives to make righteous judgment. Here at Corinth, again, if you read through the past, Paul says, I have already judged this person. And notice what he says. I've already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus. You know, today we say, if you look at, you know, on TV and you look at some of the charismatic, the name of Jesus is like this crazy phrase, and really all it means is with the authority of Jesus. It used to be people, you know, cops would be running after somebody, they'd say, stop in the name of the law. And I remember as a kid going, what's the name of the law? I don't understand, what are you talking about? When they say stop in the name of the law, they're saying stop by the authority of, of, of the, the law, of this enforcement group of people in our culture, in our country. So when he says, in the name of Jesus, what he's saying is, I have passed judgment with him, and Jesus is absolutely okay with this. I'm doing this by his authority, because this is what he wants to have happen. I passed judgment on him as the one who's been doing this, so when you're assembled, and I'm with you, in the spirit, he's not talking about in some trance, but the Bible says that those of us who walk according to the spirit walk in alignment with the spirit's desires. He says, I'm with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present. Hand this person over to the destruction, over to Satan. Make a judgment. Say, listen, you are to be removed from the fellowship. You are not going to be permissive. In 1 Corinthians 5, 12, he says, listen, you don't worry about judging the world. What I'm telling you is, you need to judge those within the, your church. So first of all, the question is, if we're to judge at all, and the answer to that is yes. Secondly, who are they to judge? And he says, listen, don't worry about judging the world. We get so mad about what's going on outside of the church. I'm not concerned with all the evil outside of the church. What I'm concerned with is the evil within the church. You see, there is a sea of lostness that the Holy Spirit and the Father and the Son recognize are going to always be a part of our existence. When we look out the windows of our cars, there is a sea of lostness that's there. When we look out the doors of our church, when we're going to campus retreat, there's a sea of lostness. And God says, I don't have any, I, I understand that. My concern, though, is not so much with the sea of lostness out there, but it's make sure that this sea within the church is one of righteousness and salvation. Because if the ark of God sinks in the waves of sin, there's no place for those that are in the sea of lostness to ever find hope. If the church becomes exactly like the world, both are doomed and there's no hope. So he says, listen, what you need you guys to know is that you need to judge, but your primary role of judging as far as enforcing is not with those out there because he said, didn't I write to you and you tell you not to, to, to what does he say? I'll just read it, okay? In verse... Uh, I wrote to you, verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, 
Not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or adulterers. In that case, you'd have to leave this world. But now I'm writing you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral, and he doesn't stop there, or greedy, or an adulterer, or a slandered, or a drunkard, or a swindler. Don't even eat with such people. What business it is of mine to judge those outside the church, you're to judge those within the church. He goes, you have, number one, are we supposed to judge? And he says, yeah, you have a role in judging. They misunderstood that. Secondly, who are we supposed to judge? Don't sit and, and condemn people who've never embraced Jesus. Don't, the, the, the people that you need to make, make sure that you are judging are those who say, I'm a follower of Jesus, that have joined your fellowship. And then the third reason why is we for, they didn't understand why they were supposed to judge. And this is huge. Huge when it comes to our understanding of why we are to judge. Paul says there are three reasons in 1 Corinthians 5 that the church is supposed to judge. And the first one is it has to do with the salvation of the person who is in sin. This guy's lost. And he will spend eternity separated from God unless he repents. And to just sit back because we don't want to offend him or we don't want to mad at him. You know, hey, you can go to hell, but I just don't want you to go to hell being mad at me. That's our philosophy a lot of times. Burn forever, brother, but don't be offended at me even for a moment. And Paul says, listen, you need to know, you need to hand this person over to certain, let him feel some of the, 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 the price of his sin now. What does he say? So that his soul will be saved. You see, they had a misunderstanding of judgment and they had a misunderstanding of what it meant to live. They thought it was all about this life and they forgot about eternity. All of those things push us into this tolerant mode where we're not going to say anything to these people. Don't they love each other? How, how are we going to say that it's wrong to have sex with somebody if you really love them, male, female, or dog? Well, here's the thing. You can say it because it's going to endanger them eternally. So he says, listen, you need to make sure that you are judging this person, first of all, not because you're better than them, not because, oh, that's so gross what they're doing, because that all leads to self-righteousness and doesn't allow your judgment to seem anything but uncaring. Stand your ground because you love them. And they're going to be lost. I had a guy sit across and ask me, what role does a homosexual male have in the Crossings Church? And I said, well, what do you mean there, Darren? And that wasn't his name. He said, well, I'm you know, I've got my, my boyfriend and what role do we have? I said, well, Darren, if you're talking about living a life of sexual sin, you won't have a role in the church. But if you're talking about having that struggle and fighting against it, there's an incredible role that you can have in helping people overcome their struggles because I know how tough this is. He decided to walk away. And so listen, I want you to know the reason that we're like this, and, and I know you got people saying this is okay. They're not going to find scripture that says this is okay. And it may seem okay. But the Bible says that when you take that last breath, all hell will shout to you, this wasn't okay. And I love you too much to have you like me at the moment, but be lost for forever. And we hugged, and he went and did his own thing. We, number one, we keep our standards because the Bible says that any sin that someone is involved in that they're unrepentant of, is always damaging to the sinner in this life and forever. The commands, Deuteronomy says, Moses, God speaking to Moses, he says, here, I'm giving you these commandments today for your own good. That's why sexual promiscuity is condemned. It's not good for us. It's not the most meaningful. It's dangerous to us. Secondly, though, not only you judge because you want to make sure that the sinner is saved, there's also a secondary reason, and that is that you want to make sure that you keep the church pure. Paul in, the, in 1 Corinthians 5 will say that, there's this, that, that sin is like leaven, and you know what leaven is. It's what you put in dough. Leaven spreads its way through the whole uh, ball of dough if it's not dealt with. It's what allows this, this little bitty thing to get big. What is that? It's leaven. It spreads. So he says the first thing you have to do is you have to, you have to make sure that you're doing this for this person's salvation. Well, they're not concerned about being saved, so we can just drop this. No, because there's a whole group of people that if you don't stand your ground, they're going to accept the ground that culture provides for them. And it endangers the church. 
And then thirdly, he says, you need to also know that the world is looking at you as a church. And if you are no different than the world, they have no reason to embrace you. If they're in a hopeless situation because of their sin, and you have wholeheartedly embraced their sin, you have removed hope from the world in general. So make sure that you do these, that you understand judgment in a Christ-like way, not in a cultural way. A fourth what do we got? They have, they, I'm kind of trying to walk through this in, as we read. They had embraced a cultural understanding of what's right and wrong rather than Christ-like. They did that because they had a cultural understanding of grace. They had a cultural misunderstanding of judgment. They had a cultural focus on life at the moment rather than eternity. I briefly mentioned that. But the truth is, anytime you focus on anything for the moment it will allow you to participate in it easier. You go to the dentist's office, they pull the tooth, it hurts, why do you put up with it? Because you know it's going to pass, it's only momentary. Anything that is passing can become something that you can participate in more easily. All they were worried about was satisfaction at the moment. And the moment at the moment seemed like this huge massive thing, but in view of eternity, it was fleeting. So you, when you're thinking about only for a moment, like, why not just live and let live, love and let love? Let them enjoy this life. They care about each other. Or whatever sin it might be that you're involved in. Drug addiction, pornography. It's all about pleasure at the moment, and it's always at the price of the long term. Long term as far as eternity, long term as far as the effects on your life in this life. It's, it's never looking at what's going to happen later on. So they had a cultural understanding and emphasis on what you do with a moment rather than a Christ-like emphasis on what happens in eternity. You've got to make sure that you keep that clear. I'm living for eternity. I'm not living for the moment. And then finally, they decided to listen to the, the teachings of culture rather than the words of Christ. And again, we've said they did this in the beginning, but here's... They did that by ignoring what the Word of God said. When Paul writes this letter, he is not telling them something that's new. He's telling them something that culture has conflicted with. They've embraced culture, but they had to choose to ignore Scripture. In verse 9, when he says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all, meaning the people of this world who are immoral or greedy or swindlers or adulterers. In that case, you'd have to like check out of the world. But now I'm writing to you. This is not the first time this conflict has been dealt with. But the first time that they dealt with it, they refused to embrace what Paul said. He, he proceeds with the idea of maybe I wasn't clear enough, although that wasn't the problem. And he says, now I'm writing you to again. Let me clarify. I wasn't talking about you being some Puritan that goes up on the mountains in the Himalayas and avoids people. You can't avoid the sexually immoral people, the greedy people, the swindlers, the creeps in your culture. You can't avoid them. I'm not telling you to avoid them. You're supposed to be reaching them. But in reaching them, you're supposed to be calling them to be Christ-like. And what you're doing is allowing the church to be culture-like rather than Christ-like. So make sure. Guys, if we're going to form, form things on the basis, how do I know what Christ wants? Do you, the only way you can know when Paul says that we are people who are supposed to judge with the mind of Christ, the only way that you can know the mind of Christ is to look at the Word of God. And asking not what God, not God help me see what I want to see, but instead asking God to help you see what He wants you to see. Not just with, guys, that's the thing in, in all of our, in our approach to Scripture. We don't go in to defend our position. We go in to find Christ's position. I mean, there are times in Scripture when I go in with a husband-wife relationship, I'm going in hoping I'll find something about Rita that's wrong that I can confront her with. But great marriages aren't built by going in looking, trying to find something that's wrong with somebody else. They're built by going in and trying to find what's wrong with me so that I can be better. Christ, what is right, what's wrong, not who's right, but what's right. And they had refused to accept what was right because they were afraid it would offend the person who was involved. Now here's the cool thing. We find out that the church repents 
of their tolerant stance. We find that on 2 Corinthians 7. And there's a whole, if you've studied through the, 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 what some people describe as the yellow book, there's a sentence on repentance where you go, you know, you become all these things, see what godly sorrow is produced in you, what eagerness, not alarm, what, you know, all those things that are there. And here's the thing. This brother ends up being restored and saved, which is Paul's goal. It was Christ's goal. But before the brother would repent of his sin of sexual immorality, before he would repent, it took the church repenting of their tolerant stand and their cultural view of sin. If you don't stand your ground, brothers and sisters will be lost. Some will anyway. But if you have an incredible loving fellowship to where you're really caring about this person so much, you will find out that many will return. At the crossings at Greater Alton before I was here, we had to disfellowship literally more than a dozen people, probably a couple of dozen people. I haven't even looked at this. At one time, I know it was right around 10 people that we had to say, you can't be a part of our fellowship. When I looked at this, and this is 15 years ago when we were before, of the 10 or 15, or 10 names that I could come up with at that time, eight of them had returned to a relationship with Jesus. Eight of them. Eight people are saved because of intolerance is better than having eight people think they're saved but lost because of your tolerance. So let's turn the tide. Let's always be loving. Let's understand when we reach the world. Man, I'm telling you, when you reach the world, expect whatever's there. Your goal is to change them, but you don't change them without being like Christ. And if you're not like Christ, Christ loses the greatest change agent that it ever blessed the world with. And that is a person living and loving like Jesus. So let's turn the tide on that, right? We're going to pray, and then I'll let you guys get out of here. Father, as we talk about this this morning, God, I don't want to be self-righteous, and I know the struggle that I have with sin in my own life. And yet, Father, I know that I am never called to be tolerant of my own sin. I am to called to turn away from it. And Father, in the same way that it is destructive for me, it is destructive for the brothers and sisters that are out there. And quite frankly, for all the world, there will come a time when God gives his final verdict for those who are involved in sin and have not repented. And the final verdict is separation. For those who have adhered to the faith of Jesus, eternity is a blessing. Father, for those who didn't, it's a curse. Father, there are people I know that we have had to withdraw from. We've had to say you can't be a part of this fellowship, not because what you're involved in is gross or because I just can't imagine liking that, but because the scriptures say that it is wrong, it is sinful, and it will destroy you. And we love you too much to endanger your eternity so that you will momentarily accept us. Father, move us to Christ-like standards. Move us to Christ-like love, Christ-like words, Christ-like commitments. But Father, help us to stay away from cultural tolerance and ungodliness. I pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen.